This message was presented through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Morning, everyone. Good to see you all. And you're here because you're scared of the judgment. <laughs> no. Um, we're going to be looking at the, um, the everlasting gospel in the context of the judgment and a little bit about the mark of the beast and about the, um, the issue of Babylon as well. But it's mainly the everlasting gospel in the context of the judgment. And let's have a prayer before we start. We'll probably have two 45-minute sections with a break in between, okay? 10-minute, 15-minute break in between. I recognize you. Yeah. Um, so let's make a start. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to be here at GYC for the workshops that are now beginning. I ask for every workshop speaker to be endued with your spirit so that we can all be clear, especially for myself. We ask that you'll bless us, be with us in this room, help us in every way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Alan Hush. Um, I'm from England. I'm the youth director for the North English Conference of the British Union. The North England Conference is fully, fully supportive of GYC Europe and GYC. And I'm so happy that GYC has come to Europe. I think it's, 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 I think it's God-ordained. It's, it's really God-ordained, and I'm so happy that we're here today. So they've given me the brief of looking at the judgment. I'm a fourth-generation Adventist, and I remember when I was a kid, I was terrified of the judgment. I'd heard preachers preach. And I didn't understand it, but I knew there was a judgment, and I was somehow terrified with the fact that one day my number would be up in heaven. My name would come up before God in heaven, and he would make a decision on me. And that would be the end of me, if I wasn't good enough. And so that was my view of the judgment. Very simplistic, very infantile, but that's what I believe, and I was quite terrified of it. But when we study it, when we look at Revelation, and we look at the entire Bible picture of the judgment, it is, something, it is something that gives you peace, not something that gives you fear. The judgment is for you, it's not against you. Uh, that all depends on which side you want to stand on, though. So we're going to look at this and unpack it in the book of Revelation with a few verses here and there in the Scripture. Okay? So then, we're going to be looking at some issues. We're going to be looking at three things. And take your pens and your paper and write these things down if you want to take notes. If you have these little zip drives, the memory stick, I can give you a copy of the presentation. All right? If you want, if you've got little memory sticks, I can give you the presentation. No problem. Looking at three things here, we're going to be exploring the three angels' message, three angels' messages, in relation to the everlasting gospel. That's the first thing we're going to be doing. The second thing I will be doing is this: to show how each message has been integral to the gospel in every age. So the first angel's message, the second angel's message, and the third angel's message have elements that have been relevant in every age of Christian and, and, and pre-Christian, Old Testament and New Testament. Elements of the three angels have been relevant in every generation since the fall, the fall of man. Then the last thing we're going to look at here is to see the love of God shining through each of the three angels' messages. We'll see how time allows us to get through them. 
But I, I really want to focus on the first angel's message, the everlasting gospel. What does it mean to fear God, to give glory to Him, to worship Him? And why should we do this? Because the hour of His judgment is come. I want to focus on that, and if we have time, we'll go to the second and third in far more detail. So, just a brief outline of the book of Revelation. Right? A brief outline of the book of Revelation before we focus on one chapter, and then a few verses. Book of Revelation, very briefly. Before chapter 14, there are three major sevens in the book of Revelation. There's the seven churches, there's the seven seals, and there's the seven trumpets. Right? The seven churches ends with an appeal to the church because the church is in a bad way. Right? The seven seals, including in them, are the four horses. The four horses of the apocalypse, they are generally negative. So before chapter 14, generally, the message is negative. God's message is negative. It's bad news before chapter 14. After chapter 14, there's another three major sevens. All right? There's another three sevens. The seven plagues, the seven vials, and the seven heads. Seven plagues, the seven vials, and the seven heads. Also negative, but there's a different emphasis in this negativity. Right? Before chapter 14, it's bad news for God's people. There's a lot of persecution taking place. The negativity is against God's people before chapter 14. So from 1 to 13, it's bad news for God's people. Lots of persecution. All right. There's the dragon, there's the beast, there's the false prophet, and they are persecuting God's people. Why is, why is John on the island of Patmos writing the book of Revelation? Because he's being persecuted. It's all bad news for God's church before chapter 14. All right? But then after chapter 14, it's good news for God's people. So from 15 to the rest, the rest of the book of Revelation, it's good news for God's people, and it's bad news for the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon. It's good news for God's people after 14, and it's bad news for the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. So there's an emphasis changed. Before 14, it's bad news for God's people. After 14, it's good news for God's people, and it's bad news for the, for, um, for the devil, for the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Okay? So something happens in chapter 14 that makes all the difference in the great controversy between good and evil for the minds of men. Chapter 14 is critical for us to understand because something happens in chapter 14 that changes the emphasis in the great controversy and in the judgment. Judgment of everybody, good and evil, the bad and the good. Something in chapter 14 is so special, so critical, it changes human, natural, and supernatural history in the great controversy. So there's something in 14 that we must understand and we must experience as Adventist youth. Chapter 14. All right. Write this principle down. This is a principle of Bible interpretation. All right. Look for themes that repeat themselves in the Bible. And in chapter 1 to chapter 13 in the book of Revelation, there's a repetition, there's a theme, and it's persecution. When a theme repeats itself, God wants us 
to place emphasis on what's been repeated. We have a saying in England, repetition strengthens the impression. You know, the, there's a principle, our, our, our Bible theologians, whether it's Friedensau, Bogenhofen, Collange, Newbold, Andrews, there's a principle in Bible interpretation called repeat and enlargement. God repeats himself and then he, and he, and he gives more detail and prophecy and he, and he enlarges the truth he wants us to understand. So in Daniel, for, for example, in Daniel chapter 2, we have the image. The image is a representation of human history. Babylon, yeah, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, feet of iron and clay, Europe, the modern nations of Europe. But then in Daniel 7, it's repeated. In Daniel 8, that same time period is repeated. And every time it's repeated, in Daniel 11, it's repeated. And every time it's repeated, God is adding more detail. He wants us to understand something. Repetition strengthens the impression. Like when your mum says to you, would you please go in the kitchen and wash the dishes? You forget. Your mum will say, please go in the kitchen and wash the dishes. You forget. Will you please, for the third time, go in the kitchen and wash the dishes? So when something is repeated to you, your mum wants you to understand. Same with God. God is simple. He uses human means to, to get our attention. And he's doing this in the book of Revelation. Persecution is a principle. All those who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Okay? And God's use, God is going to use persecution for a reason, and, and we're going to come to that, but it's nothing to be scared of. All right. So look for subjects that keep repeating themselves. All right. Very quickly, Revelation, quick outline. Chapter 1, lots of persecution to 13. Chapter 15, close of probation. So something happens in 14 that brings the close of probation. Right? The seven last plagues, chapter 16. Chapter 17, we have seven heads. Chapter 18, the destruction of Babylon. Chapter 19, the destruction of the beast and the false prophet. You see how it's bad news for God's enemies now. Okay? Satan is locked up. Bad news for Satan. He's locked up. The new Jerusalem, good news for God's people and the throne of God. We're all in heaven. Praise the Lord. So after, after 14, good news for God's people, bad news for God's enemies. But 14 is what we're going to focus on. So what's so important about chapter 14? That's what, we're going to look at this. What is so important about chapter 14? And Adventist young people, you need to understand, both intellectually, and you need to have an experience spiritually with chapter 14. If you haven't got the head knowledge and you haven't got the heart, that's why the Bible says you must be sealed intellectually and spiritually. Right? I want to put my laws into your minds and write them on the tablets of your heart. We've got to have an intellectual knowledge alongside an experiential knowledge with chapter 14, especially because it makes all the difference in the book of Revelation. And as Adventist young people, you need to have the knowledge and the experience. This is why I praise God for GYC because it's digging deep. Digging deep. It has high expectations of young people. Both mentally and spiritually. Right. Let's look at chapter 14 in more detail, very quickly. Verses 1 to 5 talks about the 144,000. You've heard of that, right? The 144,000. I don't care if it's literal or spiritual number. Some say, oh, there's only going to be 144,000 people. <laughs> Am I going to be one of them? And everyone gets scared. I don't care if it's spiritual or literal. 
I don't care if it's, but what I do care about is, am I part of it? That's what we must care about. Am I one of them? Not whether it's spiritual or literal. Let's not get bogged down there. Verse 6 to 12, that's the three angels' messages. Verses 13 to 20, talking about the second coming or the harvesting, the second coming. That's the, uh, what theologians call the, eg- the executive judgment. Chapter 14, you've got 144,000, the three angels' message, the second coming. Talking about an executive um, judgment. There's a a declaration made. That's chapter 14. So simple, isn't it? 144,000. The three hundred messages. Jesus coming again. So simple. Let's ask another question. Is the book of Revelation written in chronological order? Is it written in a timeline? The book of Revelation. Is it written chronologically? Yeah. Well, the answer to that is no, is no. Parts of it are, and parts of it are not. The answer is no. How do I know the answer is generally no, that Revelation is not chronological? Let's turn to chapter 12. Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Let's read verse 3. Revelation 12 and verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven... Having, and, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away the third part of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. What is this describing in chapter three, in verse 3 and 4? The dragon cast out of heaven, swept, his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. What is it describing? The fall of Lucifer is describing the war in heaven. Satan being cast out of the kingdom of heaven. But now read verse 2. Read verse 2. And she was with child and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, she gave birth. Who is the she in verse 2? The woman in Bible prophecy represents what? God's church or God's people. And who is the child in verse 2? Jesus. So let's ask a question very practically. Was the, devil, was the devil cast out of heaven after Jesus was born as a baby in a manger? No. So that tells us right there and then, the book of Revelation is not generally written in chronological order. No. We have to read it intelligently, more intelligent than that. But there are parts of Revelation that is written in chronological order. Now, how do I know that? How can we know for sure that when I'm reading the book of Revelation, it's chronological. How can I know for sure? All right, that's the question. Right, here's another principle of interpretation number two. Principle, principle number two. You're looking out for the first, the second, the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh. Seven churches, seven trumpets, Seven vials, okay? You're looking at that more closely and you will see that, ah, those passages in Scripture are in chrono- historically in chronological order. All right? And that includes the three angels' message from verse 6 to 12. Let's turn to verse to chapter 14 again. How do I know the three angels is chronological? Chapter 14, verse 6. And I saw another angel. Wait a minute. 
another angel. Is this a second one? All right. Verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Then in verse 8. And another angel. But look what it says. A second one. Two. A second one in verse 8. So that's telling you that the angel in verse 6 seen flying is the what? The first one. Because the one in verse 8 is described as the second one. So that tells you right there in the Bible that the first angel is the one in verse 6. The one flying. The one in verse 8 is flying. Let's read down there in verse 9. Then another angel. A what? A third one. So the Bible is telling you that these three angels are connected. I saw another angel. There were angels before verse 6. I saw another angel. But then another one followed. All right? Then I saw another angel, a third one. So the Bible is telling us that these three angels are connected. But when we read chapter 14, there are actually six angels. Not three. There are six angels. So why don't we have the six angels' messages? Simply because the other three angels don't have a message. So we know for sure from looking at the Bible itself, if we look down there in verse 15 and verse 17 and verse 18, you'll see three other angels. But these, but these angels do not have a message, so they're not part of the three angels' messages. So we know for sure that we have only three messages in chapter 14. The three angels are connected in a way that the, the other three angels are not connected. All right? Three angels' messages. We must ask the Bible questions and let the Bible give us the answer. Okay. Right, so let's ask another question. <clears throat> let's ask another question. So why did God place the 144,000 before the three angels' messages at the beginning of chapter 14? I ask this question because of this. If we read chapter 14... The first few verses, talking about the 144,000, you get the impression that this scene is taking place in heaven. It's on Mount Zion. All right? They have been redeemed. They have been redeemed. It's as if it's after the fact. So why did God put the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion? They have been redeemed before the three angels' message. If the time of the three angels' message we understand to be the time of planet Earth, before judgment, before the second coming. Are you with me? Why did God put the 144,000 before the three angels' message? It would make sense to me that the chapter should, should talk about the three angels' message first, then the second coming in the judgment, then the 144,000. Do you follow my logic? But God presents it in a different way. He presents the 144,000 first. Why would he do that? Again, the Bible answers those simple questions itself. The Bible answers those questions. We have to understand that chapters and verses were added to the Bible for our understanding. In the original manuscripts, both in the Hebrew Old Testament and the Aramaic as well in the Old Testament, and in the Greek New Testament, there were no chapters and there were no verses. They were added later for our understanding to break it down into bite-sized chunks. And so, originally, there was no chapters and verses. So we need to read 
what is happening before God introduces the 144,000 in chapter 13. So we need to look at what's happening in the closing scenes of chapter 13. And now we'll understand why God's put the 144,000 before the three angels' messages. The characteristics of the 144,000. What is the first characteristic mentioned about the 144,000 in chapter 14? Can someone answer me that question? Verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name, and in and the same, and the name of his father written on their foreheads. The first characteristic is that the father's name is written in the forehead of the 144,000. Why does the Bible describe the 144,000 in this way? With the father's name in their forehead. Why? Right. Why? Chapter 13 introduces something called the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast. And that mark will be either in the forehead or in the hand. And who will issue the mark of the beast? The beast is going to issue and enforce the mark of the beast. All right? So there's a lamb-like beast in chapter 13 who will mark everyone with the mark of the beast. So the mark of the beast is connected to the lamb-like beast all right, of chapter 13. And then immediately after, everyone is receiving the mark of the beast, God says, but aha, there's 144,000 who do not have the mark of the beast. This 144,000 has the seal of the living God, not the seal of the beast, the mark of the beast. Not everyone is going to receive the mark. There's going to be 144,000 who have the Father's name in their foreheads. So God is saying, though it is bad news in chapter 13 for God's people, but there shall be a group of Adventist young people who will not receive the mark. These people are going to have the name of the Father written in their foreheads. In other words, they will have the seal of the living God. You see what God is doing? He's contrasting. And this is principle of Bible interpretation number three. Look for contrasts in the Bible. Look for contrasts. God communicates truth by contrast. And we do it the same today. We can compare ourselves with somebody to make a point. Yeah? You know, we compare Bayern Munich with Manchester United to try and make a point, right? Barcelona with Chelsea, right? To try and make a point. Um, <clears throat> who's the better team? So we're contrasting. That's what God is doing here. This is them, but have you looked at this? Something different. Right. So we have a contrast. Contrast is the method of, 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 of communication. Watch for contrasts. So the point God is making is there will be a people who will not receive the mark of the beast. Why? Because they have the Father's name written in their forehead, in their forehead, heads. And that's simply the point God wants to make. What else do we need to know? We need to know if we are part of that number. We need to know if we have the seal of the living God. That's what we need to know. We don't need to know if the number is literal or not. Right? But we need to know as Adventist young people, do we have the seal of the living God? Do we have the Father's name written in our foreheads? Because if you don't, you will have the mark of the beast. There's no other option. It's one or the other. All right? and we haven't even got to the three angels' messages yet. This is the introduction. All right? 
So then, 144,000. Let's look at their characteristics very quickly. They sing a new song. They are virgins. They follow the Lamb. They are the first fruits. They have no guile. They are without fault. They have the Father's name written in their foreheads. So that's a pretty superhuman, supernatural. That's a super spiritual bunch of Adventist youth, isn't it? Are they super spiritual or what? Okay, they're super spiritual. They are, of course they are. So you get the picture that the 144,000 are spiritual superheroes. How did they get like that? How did the 144,000 receive all these characteristics that God says is positive? How did they get them? How did they achieve it? How did they do it? Enter the three angels' messages. The 144,000 had an experience with God, an experience with the three angels' messages. That's how they did it. So if you want to be the first fruits, have no guile, be without fault, you want to follow the Lamb, you want to be a spiritual version, you want to sing a new song on Mount Zion, on the Sea of Glass, you want to experience that? You need to have an experience with the three angels' messages. That's what the Bible is telling you. As Adventist young people, it's not time to dance jigs. It's not time to just play around. It's not time to listen to just gospel music, to just Christian rock music. It's not time to just have fun and games. I like fun and games. But we've got to do a lot more than that. We've got to do more than just fly airplanes. We've got to do more than just surf a wave. We've got to do more than just get into football. Those things are good. But we have to have an experience with the three angels' messages. If we don't, we'll have the mark of the beast while playing football. We'll have the mark of the beast while surfing a wave. Are you with me? It's time to be serious and happy at the same time. Have fun, but have an experience with God while you're having fun. Somehow the devil has distracted his people. Somehow the devil can sidetrack us. So all youth ministry is about having fun. It's more than that. It's having fun and knowing God is your personal savior. And having an experience with the three angels' message. Got to do it. Especially the final generation. Right, let's look more closely. Now we're going to look at the three angels' messages. All right, the first angel's message. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. There it is. The everlasting gospel, the midst, the mark of the beast, Babylon, and the judgment. The everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, through every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So the first angel introduces to us the everlasting gospel. The word everlasting tells us that the gospel has not had a beginning or an end. It is everlasting. Right? Wait a minute. Didn't sin actually begin at the fall in the Garden of Eden? It's true. The gospel has been applicable in every age since the fall. And before. Genesis 3.15 is the first promise to Adam and Eve. The promise of the solution to the problem of sin. It's the promise of the gospel. It's the promise of the Messiah. This is, a, this is one of the most powerful verses in scripture. It's the first promise given to man and it's the promise of Jesus. Coming to deal with the problem of sin. It's the gospel. Right? The everlasting gospel. Now I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, 
and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and he shall bruise thy heel. This is from the King James Version, but it's not quite clear. Another version says, and it shall bruise thy head, and he shall bruise thy heel. He being Jesus, all right? No, wait a minute. Let's get that right. It shall bruise thy head. It, this, this is King James Version. I, shouldn't have, I should, have, should have took it from this one, New American Standard Bible. He shall bruise your head. He is Jesus. Your is the devil. Head. But it's not bruise. It's crush in the original language. So Jesus is going to stamp on your head. Jesus is going to crush your head into the ground in the original language while you are simply going to bruise Jesus' heel. You're just going to tickle him. And he's going to get, oh, yeah. He'll be irritated. But Jesus is going to smash your head into the dirt. That's the original language. That's the, that's the promise of the gospel. Satan's defeated before he's even begin. That's the promise of the gospel. And so, and Ellen White also tells us that not only from the start of sin, the Bible just explained that, but Ellen White says that the cross of Christ in the desire of ages, she says the cross of Christ will be the science and the song of the redeemed throughout the endless ages of eternity. And Jesus will forever have the reminder of the cross scarred into his body, the nails in his hand and his feet as a reminder of what sin cost. So there will be an eternal remembrance of the gospel for eternity. It will be everlasting in its effects. Not only spiritually, but physically for Jesus. Everlasting consequences. The gospel is truly everlasting. The Bible also says, the Bible also says, that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, verse 8. Look at what the Bible says. Verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship Him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life, of the Lamb who has been slain. Turn to 1 Peter 1, verse 20. 1 Peter 1, verse 20. Verse 20, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So before the foundation of the world, the gospel was a reality and was an experience in the mind of God that has been truly everlasting in some way, shape, or form. Not, not on earth, but in the mind of God. Before God even made the earth, He prepared the gospel to save the earth. So the gospel is truly everlasting in its, in its, in, in its spectrum. Not just not everlasting in our experience, because our experience began with the gospel, with the first promise it's at, at, at the fall. But the gospel has been experienced in the mind of God from everlasting to everlasting. So it is truly an everlasting gospel. Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says, God has loved us with an everlasting love and I have drawn you to myself. 
but his love has been everlasting to everlasting. Right, notice also what the first angel is introducing to us. Also, and I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Look at those two phrases. I saw an angel. He didn't hear the angel, though the angel is speaking, but he also saw the angel. In other words, John experienced the angel. He experienced it through more than one sense. Yeah, he saw it and he heard it. He felt it as he lived the message. So we have to have an experience with the angel. We have to have a connection and an interaction with the angel. The everlasting gospel is not just head knowledge. It must be experienced. We have to experience Jesus before we can have a testimony to speak about Jesus. We have to experience him before we, have a te- before we can testify him. I have to experience him for myself. And I experienced Jesus for the first time when I was 24. Fourth generation Adventist. I was unconverted in the church. I grew up in the church. I stayed in the church. But my heart was cold. I was unconverted until I was 24 years old. It was just me and the Bible and the Holy Spirit. And I read the Bible for myself for the first time when I was 24. And that's when Jesus reached me. So just because you're born in the church... You know, you may not have done drugs. You may not have gone out there and slept with 200 women. But you can be thoroughly unconverted in the church. Your mind can be elsewhere while you're sitting in the, before the preacher in the, in the church. And that was me. So we have to have an experience with the gospel. It must be lived. It must be our story. Now the angel is flying in the midst of heaven. Look at this. The angel is flying in the midst of heaven. Why does the Bible describe the angel flying in mid-heaven? In other words... The Bible is in our, uh, the angel is in our atmosphere, but not standing on planet Earth. It's visible, but it's not on the ground. This could be alluding to the fact that this message has to go worldwide. Could be alluding to the message that the angels have an intention for you and me. Some authors say it's because it's in mid-heaven, because the message must be seen and heard around the world. That's true, and I believe it. That is true. But it could be more than that, as well as that. It could be, it just could be, this is just my thoughts, and I may be wrong. Perhaps the angels are staying in mid-heaven because they want you and me to carry the message on the earth. You follow me? The angels are not walking on earth, they're flying in heaven. But who is walking on earth? Who is living on earth? You and me. When we read the Bible, we get the clear, clear picture that in heaven there is a chain of command. God the Father, who did he send to deal with the sin problem? The Father sent the Son. In the Bible, when the Son was leaving back to heaven, who did the Son send? Hmm? Jesus sent someone to the disciples when he ascended to heaven. So when Jesus was leaving, he sent the Holy Spirit. All right? So there's God the Father who sent the Son. There's the Son who sent the Holy Spirit. You see the chain of command? Could the Holy Spirit be, could the Holy Spirit be coordinating the ministry of angels? Just an idea. It's just a thought. Could the Holy Spirit be coordinating the ministry of angels? 
And could the angels be passing the message, the gospel, to God's people on earth to take to the world? Are you with me? The chain of command. God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, the angels. Man is the final link in the chain to communicate the gospel to the world. And you know the saying, the chain breaks where? The chain breaks at its weakest link. So of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the angels, and man, who is the weakest link? You see why it's important to live and experience the three angels' message? Because if you don't, you won't be telling the world. You won't be telling the world. Because we're the weakest link. It stops with the church. That's just my idea, but let's move on very quickly. Yeah, let's move on. Saying with a loud voice. Now we're hearing. We're hearing what the angel is saying, right? We're not seeing it. We're hearing it. Saying with a loud voice. What is the angel asking us to do? The angel is asking us to do three things. The angel is saying, fear God and give glory to Him. And the angel is asking us to worship Him. The angel is asking us to fear God, give glory to Him, and to worship Him. Can I stop there? I can't remember what time I started. It was quarter to, wasn't it? 9.45. Can you stop me then at 10.30 for a short break? What time is it now? 23. Seven minutes left. All right, stop me at half past for a short break. All right? So the angel's asking us to do, uh, to do three things. Fear God, give glory to Him, and to worship Him. So why is the angel asking us to do that? Why? It's in the verse. Because the hour of judgment is come. So the angel is connecting the fearing of God, the giving glory to God, and the worshiping of God to judgment. So the angel has the everlasting gospel. What is the everlasting gospel? The everlasting gospel is... To fear God, to give glory to Him, to worship Him. Why? For the hour of His judgment is come. So the everlasting gospel is or does include judgment. It does include fear. It does include worship. And it does also include giving glory. That's the gospel that the angel has. And that is the same everlasting gospel we see lived out in, in Jesus' life. When Jesus lived on earth, He was fearing God. He was glorifying God. And he was worshipping God. But there is something. The reason why the angel is asking us to do this now is because the hour of the judgment is come. Is come. That's the catalyst to do this. In other words, the angel is reminding us to do what every Christian has ever had to do. But why? Because now... The hour of the judgment is come. So now, the gospel includes the judgment from 1844. We're going to come to explain this in, in, in more detail. Three things. All right. So, the angel is asking us to fear God, to give glory to Him, and to worship Him. Why? Because the hour of His judgment is come. So, principle of interpretation Another principle of interpretation. In the Bible, look for crescendos. Look for crescendos. I want to share with you something interesting. This is the first angel's message. 
saying with a loud voice, give glory to him. Four words. All right. Why? For the hour of his judgment is come. Eight words. This is just an interesting thing. Four words, eight words. And worship him, right? And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Sixteen words. Four, eight, sixteen. So there's a crescendo. Something's building, right? In the text, something's building. And so look for crescendos when you're studying the Bible. Look for momentum. Look for the volcano erupting in the text. God's going to take you somewhere to give you an experience with him. Just like, just, like, just like when your father tells you off. My father used to tell me off. Alan, uh, don't do that with my car. Alan, don't do that with my car. Alan, I've told you that before. Don't do it with my car. I'll smack you if you keep doing it. Right, that's it. <clears throat> Boom. That's a crescendo. My dad wanted to communicate to me a message, and I wasn't listening. He wanted to get my attention, so there was a crescendo culminating in a smack. That's negative, right? But I'm trying to illustrate the point. In the Bible, look for those crescendos, all right? God wants to get your attention. <clears throat> so let's ask the question, what is unique about the first angel's message? There's something in the Bible, please write this down, this will help you to understand. There is something in the Bible called precious truth. Precious truth. And there's something in the Bible called present truth. You can translate that into your, into your mother tongue. Present truth and precious truth. Okay? I'm going to give an example of precious truth. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, the first angel's message, there is precious truth and there is present truth. And we need to understand the difference between the two. All right? Precious truth. Precious truth is a truth for all time. It is a truth that is to be, that is to be preached, is to be experienced, is to be lived, is to be embraced in every generation. For all time. That's precious truth. An example of precious truth. John the Baptist. Repent. Repent. Going around the wilderness. Going around the river Jordan. Going around the hills of Galilee. Repent. 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 That's a precious truth. Everyone has had to repent. That's precious truth. But an example of present truth. Present truth is John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's present truth. He's linking precious truth with present truth. Repent is precious truth. Everyone has, has ever had to repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now is the time. The fulfillment of the prophecies in Daniel. Right? The fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. That's present truth for that generation. This is the Messiah. This is He, the one that was promised in the prophecies of Daniel. That's present truth. So precious and present. 
Another example of present truth would perhaps be Noah. Noah's preaching for 120 years before the flood comes. He's preaching, get in the ark, save yourselves, the rain is coming. Is that precious or present truth? Present truth. So after the flood now, is Noah still preaching, repent, get in the ark, the rain is coming? No, because that was truth for that time. That was present truth. But after the flood, Noah stopped preaching that. Now there is something in the first angel's message which is precious truth, and there is something which is present truth. And you can figure that out without me telling you. All right. So then, here's the thing. If we do not accept present truth at the right time, we may even lose our lives eternally. So it's important, both precious and present. They're both connected, and you can't have present truth without precious truth. Precious truth is the foundation for present truth. Are you with me? You can't accept the Messiah until you repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Present truth lays the foundation. Precious truth lays the foundation for present truth. You cannot separate them. When you do, you fall into legalism. Legalism. But when you keep the precious with the present, with the present, it's the gospel in its unity and, its, and in its completeness. When you separate it, it's legalism. All right? Right, so let's, t let's say fearing God, is that precious or is that present truth? Precious truth, right? That's true. That's precious truth. Giving glory to God, is that precious truth or present truth? Precious, right? Worship of Him, is that precious or present? Precious, right? Now then, the hour of His judgment is come. Present. You see, you see my point? You must get that point. The hour of his judgment is the present truth. But the foundation is the precious. And the angel is making an appeal, which is the everlasting gospel. In other words, the angel is repeating the gospel of old. But with an emphasis on present truth. We do this now because, especially because the hour of his judgment has come. Okay, 10 minute break. Thank you. 10 minute break. 10 minutes. So then, just very quickly looking at this uh, precious truth. Fearing God, what does it mean biblically to fear God? Let's look at that very quickly, very interesting. What does it mean biblically to fear God? Psalm 111 verse 10 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. So to fear God is to get wisdom. So fearing God is the getting of wisdom, a good understanding, or have all they that do His commandments. So the fruit of fear is wisdom. The fruit of wisdom as an understanding to keep His commandments. To fear God means to keep His commandments. Which is wisdom, which is why the Song of Solomon 
Get wisdom. Get wisdom. Proverbs. Get wisdom. Get wisdom. So to fear God is to get wisdom. To get wisdom is to get understanding. To get understanding is to keep the commandments of God. That's what it means to fear God. Then in Proverbs 8.13 it says, The fear of the Lord is to what? Hate evil. And arrogance and the evil way and the forward mouth do I hate. So to fear God means to get wisdom, to get understanding, so you can keep his commandments, because you hate evil. That's what it means to fear God. Because you hate evil, you love to keep his commandments. That is the everlasting gospel. That's what it means to fear God from the Bible perspective. It's not just about worship and reverence. To fear God isn't just revering him, you know. It's actually hating evil and wanting to keep the right way, to follow God's way. And this is the everlasting gospel, to want to follow the ways of God rather than the ways of evil. Very quickly, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. Very, very quickly, Exodus chapter 19. Oh, I wish I had four hours to do this. I wish I had the whole day. Exodus 14, the first angel's message is the everlasting gospel. It is the foundation for the second and third angel's message. Exodus 19, this is the very first thing that God said to the children of Israel when they were released from captivity, before he gave the Ten Commandments. The first thing that God said to the people, verse 4. No, let's, let's actually read, let's actually read verse, verse 3. Moses went up to God and to the Lord, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, this is God speaking now, this is what you shall say to the house of Jacob. Tell the sons of Israel this, this. You have seen what I have did to the Egyptians? You have seen how I bore you on eagles' wings? You have seen how I brought you to myself? What is God doing there in verse 4? God is saying, I am the Savior. You're in captivity. You're in Egypt. You're slaves. I am the one that delivered you. I am the one that brought you to myself. I am the one that freed you. I am the one that redeemed you. That's the gospel. What did Jesus do for, uh, for us upon the cross? While we were trapped in sin, shaping in iniquity, Jesus came into the sin problem, just how God came into the problem of captivity, the problem of slavery. Jesus came into the sin problem and freed us from the clutches and the bars of sin. This is why Jesus said when he stood up to preach, I have come to heal the brokenhearted. I have come to give sight to the blind. I have come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I have come to set you free. This is the gospel, the everlasting gospel and the experience of the children of Israel. And the slavery in Egypt is a parallel and it's an allegory of the slavery of sin. And the deliverance of the children of Israel from evil is an allegory and a lesson of the deliverance through the cross from the power of sin in our life. But notice verse 5. Verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. In other words, keep my commandments and follow me. 
You like what you experience, Israel? You're free. 400 years of slavery. 16 generations. Now you're free. You like it? You want to experience more of this? Just follow me. Walk with me. Walk with me. I will lead you to the pillar of fire in the cloud. I will camp in the middle of you. Walk with me. I will be your God. Just keep my covenant. That's the everlasting gospel. Just keep my commandments. Follow my ways. Follow me to the promised land. Fearing God is the same gospel as Exodus chapter 19, verse 4 and 5. And verse 6 is another story. I'm not preaching. So verse 6 is for another lesson. So to fear God is the everlasting gospel in every generation. All right. Notice this verse as well. All right. So to fear God means to keep His commandments because you hate evil. Fearing God is to keep His commandments because you hate evil. Think of, keep that thought in your head, right? Look at this verse. Jeremiah 13, verse 23. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to doing evil? This is a rhetorical question. We have just learned to fear God means to keep His commandments and to hate evil, right? Then the Bible is saying in Jeremiah, can you change your skin? Can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? Can you do it? No, we can't do it of ourselves. In our own strength, we can't. But it's a rhetorical question. It's saying, you can do it. You can. But you can't do it. It has to be me that does it. It appears that we can't help ourselves, and it's true. To fear, if to fear God means to hate evil and keep God's commandments, then we can do good even though we are accustomed to doing evil. We are born in sin and shaped in iniquity, and we are accustomed to doing evil. We are born with a bent to sin. But even though the Bible says we are accustomed to doing evil, through the power of the cross, through what Jesus has done for you and can do for you today, though you are accustomed to doing evil, you can do good. And you can keep His commandments. And you can hate evil. Are you with me? That's the everlasting gospel. And it's Jesus that makes the difference. It's the power of God through the Holy Spirit in your young life that can give you the deliverance from the addictions that you're struggling with. You can do it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I used to smoke 25 cigarettes a day. God gave me the deliverance. I used to sleep around with many women before I became a Christian. Remember, I was 24 when I got converted. I wasn't a virgin. I wish I was. I'm a spiritual virgin. But I wasn't a physical virgin when I got married. I wish I was. But through the power of God, you can overcome the addictions. Even though you're accustomed to doing evil, there's a miracle working power that I can't explain, but I have experienced. And we must all experience the three angels' message. It's the power of the gospel to change ruined lives. To the power and the presence of Jesus. It's a miracle. It's the new birth. And God's people have always been expected to keep His commandments. Where are we? Oops. What have I done? 
All right. I've just done something here. Okay, right, now I found my place. So then, what does it mean to give glory to God? Just very interestingly. What does it mean to give glory to God? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 says, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Evangelists like to use this text when they're talking about the health message. They're talking about whatever you eat and whatever you drink. It includes that. And I believe in the health message. But it's far more than that. It's whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. So when you're watching a movie, are you watching that movie to the glory of God? <laughs> when, you wa- when you're watching, you know, and swearing and violence and cheating and lying, and wow, it's a cool movie. Are you doing that to the glory of God? It impacts everything about who you are. Giving glory to God is giving glory to God in your whole experience and in your whole life. Worship Him. What does worship Him mean? Very quickly, worship Him. We worship Him 24-7, not just when we come to church. You know, but we have, we have to move on. So then, the present truth in the first angel's message is the hour of His judgment has come. Fearing God, glorifying God, and worshipping God all support present truth. And you can't have present truth without precious truth. Now then, what makes you a Seventh-day Adventist? Does fearing God make you a Seventh-day Adventist? Do other churches fear God? Does worshipping God make you a Seventh-day Adventist? Do other churches worship God? Does giving glory to God make you a Seventh-day Adventist? Do other churches glorify God? What makes you a Seventh-day Adventist? The hour of judgment is come. It's the present truth. The reason why God created, appointed the Seventh-day Adventist church is to remind the world of the gospel in the context of present truth. And if we are not experiencing and living and teaching the gospel in the context of present truth, we are failing in our mission. We are failing in our mission. Which is why youth ministry without present truth is a failure. Got the gospel without present truth in the Adventist church is failing. It's failing. When I hear youth leaders say that the youth do not need to know the doctrines, they do not need to know the prophecies, when I hear youth leaders saying, that all the youth don't need to know the investigative judgment, 1844, the sanctuary. That's too heavy for them. Be careful. Be careful. They're not leading you well. They're trying to keep you in church by keeping you happy. But the world cannot compete with, the church cannot compete with the world. Young people stay in church because they have a purpose and they have an identity. And they have a love for the truth. So your youth leaders must present to you the whole gospel in the context of present truth. It's more than just entertainment. Entertainment is a small part of youth ministry. That's why I say praise God for GYC. 
because GYC places the emphasis where it should be. Are you with me? <clears throat> so it's the judgment hour message that we need to know and to need to understand. I wish I had more time. I know I'm going to run out of time. Right. Here's the principle of interpretation very quickly. When you're reading the Bible, look for action words. Look for the action words in the text. What are the action words in the first angel's message? Flying, preaching, and dwelling. Very quickly. The action words, flying, preaching, and dwelling. Of those three action words, which, are the most, which is the most important word for you to understand? Is it the flying? How fast is the angel flying? Is that important? Mark 3. I don't know. Don't care. All right? Uh, dwelling on the earth. That's an action word. Do I need to know where the people are dwelling? No, I don't. But the angel is preaching. It's saying something. Do I need to know? Yes, that's where the emphasis is. I need to pay attention to the angel's message. All right? So look, so look for the prominent action word in the scripture when you're reading it. If you find the main action word, it helps you find, to find where the emphasis is. Ask the questions when you're reading the Bible. What, where, why, when, who, and how. Ask the question. I'll apply this. Who is preaching? It's the angel that's preaching. To whom is the angel preaching? To those on earth. What is he preaching? He's preaching the everlasting gospel. What is the everlasting gospel? To fear God, to give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth. That's the everlasting gospel. Are we going to see a literal angel flying in the midst of heaven? I don't think so. I don't think so. That part could be spiritual. How do we know it could be symbolical? I haven't got time. I'm going to tell you Galatians 4.14. Galatians 4.14 tells you that the Apostle Paul is an angel. God likens men to angels when they have a message. Galatians 4 verse 14. We can't go there because of time. So these angels could be symbolic right, or spiritual. Could be symbolic, symbolizing men taking the message of the gospel to the world. All right? Why is the angel flying in heaven? Could indicate the message is worldwide. I've mentioned that. Is the everlasting gospel the same gospel as the gospel today? Yes, of course it is. The Bible says there's one Lord, one baptism. One Lord, one message, one baptism. Right. Right. Now, how do we know that fearing God, giving glory to God, and worshiping God in the hour of His judgment is the gospel? We need to explain from the Bible, both Old and New Testament. We've looked at that. Fearing God is the gospel. Giving glory to God is the gospel. We've looked at it. All right? But which of these four characteristics explain in completeness the gospel? I like to suggest it's the hour of his judgment is come. And there is an Adventist doctrine that explains the judgment hour message. Do you know which one it is? I haven't got time to even look at that message. It's the sanctuary message. It unpacks to you. It unpacks for us. Unpacks the gospel message in detail during the time of judgment, 1844 to when Jesus comes. It unpacks it in beautiful detail in a way that words cannot do it. You know what? I'm going to try and describe to you my wife. She is the most beautiful girl on the earth. Right? I'm subjective, right? I'm subjective. She's the most beautiful woman on earth, all right? She's not the most perfect, but she's the most beautiful. And I'm trying to say to you, okay, she's got brown hair, she's got big brown eyes, she's got a nice figure, 
Her ears are about this big, you know. Her eyes are about this wide. No, this far apart. Her nose is about this long. And her lips are about this wide. She's got a beautiful cheek that's seven and a half inches you know, in front of her neck. You don't really get the picture, do you? Words cannot give you the picture that I'm trying to portray. But what if I pulled out from my pocket a photograph of her? All right? You're going to go, whoo, she is a good looker. She is sweet. She is beautiful. You're going to agree with me, right? <laughs> a picture tells a thousand words. Are you with me? So the sanctuary is a picture of the plan of salvation. And that picture tells a thousand words. And that's the sanctuary that helps to explain the time of the judgment is come. And we haven't got any time to look at the sanctuary. Wow. So if you want to look at the characteristics of Jesus, the everlasting gospel is all there in the sanctuary message. Whew. Right. So when we worship the Creator during the hour of judgment, it shows that we are truly fearing God and giving glory to Him. There's an emphasis on, in creation in the first angel's message. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Creation is mentioned in the first angel's message. All right. So there's a connection between the fourth commandment, creation. Creation is found in the fourth commandment, right? All right. And the three angels' message. So there's a, there's a connection between the fourth commandment and the three angels' message. In the first angels' message, we have the name of God. Right? Fear God. Fear God. In the first angels' message, we have the title. Worship Him who made heaven and earth, the Creator. That's His title. His name is God. His title is Creator. And we also have the territory. In the first angel's message, worship, fear God, and worship him who made the creator, the title, name and, and title, and territory, heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. So we have the seal of the living God in the first angel's message. And that same seal is in the fourth commandment, Exodus chapter 20. So the first angel's message is connected to the, to the fourth commandment. It's connected to creation. That's the first angel's message. And the second angel's message are founded upon the first, so it's all connected. So there is something about the seal of the living God that is connected to the Sabbath. So if the mark of the beast could be Sunday worship, could the seal of the living God be Sabbath? Are you with me? The Sabbath is in the angel's message. We don't just worship on Sabbath because we're Seventh-day Adventists. No. No, 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 no. It's the heart. It's the center. It's the gospel. It's the everlasting gospel. So when we fear men, we will give glory to men. And then we will worship the beast and receive the mark of the beast. Remember Revelation 13. When we fear men, we will give glory to men. To men. As a leader in God's church, if I fear man more than I fear God, I'm not a leader. 
I'm a puppet. You know what a puppet is? I'm a mannequin. You know what a mannequin is? If I fear God before the fear of man, then I'm God's leader. I'm a true shepherd. But I slip into being a false shepherd when I put the, when I put the ways of men before the ways of God. God is looking for youth leaders in His church who will put God first before men. To do what's right is not necessarily to do what's nice. To do what's right is not necessarily to do what's popular. But I'm not here to teach on leadership. All right? <clears throat> when we fear God, we give glory to Him, and we will receive the seal of the living God and are saved. To fear God, we have learned, is to get wisdom. And to get wisdom is to get understanding so that we can keep His commandments because we hate evil. If we have an experience with God so that we have a hatred of evil and we want to do what's right, we will receive the seal of the living God. Isn't that beautiful? And isn't that so simple? We will receive the seal of the living God just by virtue of being in the presence of God and wanting to do what's right. We will be sealed. And then we will automatically want to glorify Him by keeping the seventh day holy. We don't keep the Sabbath in order to get the seal. The Sabbath is it's like, it's, it's, it's the sign of the seal. To receive the seal, we just want to follow God's will. And we will do His will. And when we do that, we'll keep the Sabbath. Are you with me? The Sabbath, the keeping of the Sabbath is the fruit of the gospel. It's the fruit of the gospel. And this bold stand before God and men takes place during the hour of His judgment. There will come a time when you will either receive the seal of the living God or you will receive the mark of the beast. But there will be 144,000 who will stand tall and they will refuse to receive the mark of the beast because they have the seal of the living God. And this takes place during the hour of God's judgment. It takes place post-1844 and pre-second coming. The word judgment in Greek literally means crisis. In the Greek, it means crisis. Judgment means crisis. And it is. That's what it is in English, too. When I was younger, I was a bit naughty, right? I was a bit naughty. I've been up before a judge, and I've had to sit in a court of law, and I did something I shouldn't have done. I did something very bad, right? And I'm sitting before the judge. Is that a crisis? Yes. It's a crisis for me. And in the Greek, in the, in, in the Hellenistic mind, in the time of Jesus, in the common language, in the Greek language, judgment meant crisis, especially if you were guilty. If you were guilty, it's a crisis. But if you're innocent, it could be deliverance. So it depends whether or not you're innocent or you're guilty in the judgment, whether it's a crisis or not. Which is why I say the judgment is positive if you're on God's side, but it's very negative if you're on the devil's side. The judgment is good news for the Christian, but it's bad news for the world. And the judgment means crisis, to cut or to divide. 
Right? So the judgment is to divide between good and evil. Those who worship the Creator and those who worship the beast. Those who fear God and those who fear man. Could it be that God will use a crisis, a crisis to identify character and to reveal what is in the heart? Could it be that God is using a simple, practical test, simple test that we accept and we experience every day in our secular life to reveal who we are? When you go to an exam at university, the exam is simply revealing who you are. It's revealing what you know, who you are. It's revealing your quality. An examination at university is revealing your caliber, who you are. That's all it is. And God is simply using what we use every day in our secular life to reveal to Him and to the universe who we truly are. Simple, isn't it? Simple. Can anyone think of another passage in the Bible where there was a test to reveal who they truly were? It was a time of crisis, and there were three of them. Hmm? No. Okay, that, yes, that was a crisis. That was a time of pressure. I'm thinking more Old Testament. Not Daniel. Oh, the book of Daniel, yes. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All right? In that passage, I haven't got time, I wish I did. There was an image. There was a call to worship. There was a death decree. The parallel. You see the parallel? All right? Those three, those three boys stood tall. They received the seal of the living God. Because they had the seal of the living God. They stood tall. And they refused to bow down to the image of the beast. This is like prophetic language in, in Revelation. Wow. So there will be a time of crisis when God's youth will have to stand tall. And those who receive the seal of the living God will be among the 144,000. They will not receive the mark of the beast. And they will do what's right no matter what. No matter what. They will do what's right. Because they have an experience and they live the three angels' messages. They have an experience with the living gospel, the everlasting gospel. They are fearing God. They are glorifying God. They are worshiping God during the hour of his judgment. The judgment then, who was being judged in Daniel chapter 3? Who was being judged? Was it just the three boys or was it everybody? Do you remember the story in Daniel 3? I'm presuming you know these things. Forgive me if you don't. Right. Everybody was being judged, right? Everybody on the plain of Dura, from all the, from all the, the, uh, the provinces. The Bible says all the satraps, the governors, the prefects, the magistrates, and all the assembled body, everyone representing the entire kingdom was there on the plain of Dura. Everybody was being judged. Judgment in the book of Revelation. Judgment is for everybody. 
And that judgment reveals who God's people is. All right? The judgment is for everyone, but it's for God's people, and it's against the world. So judgment is good news for God's people. It's just simply a time for them to reveal who they truly are. They've already been sealed. So then, our message helps us, the first angel's message helps us to understand something. From 1844, I'm presuming you know this as well. Forgive me if you don't, all right? Is when the investigative judgment began to the time of the second coming. That's simply the time when the first angel's message began to be preached, right? The hour of his judgment has come in the spring of 1843. Gain momentum up into 1844, all right? We believe that judgment begins with the dead. There's a Bible text to support that. All right? Now, it's easy to judge the dead. How is it easy to judge the dead? It's easy to judge the dead simply because we have the books of record. The Bible says there are the books of record. They're dead, right? It's history. They just read the books of record. But how do you judge the living? How can someone judge someone who's still alive? How can that be? How can you judge the living? Bible says, judgment begins with the dead. That's the easy bit, right? But how is God going to judge the living? Is there something in heaven, like a timeline, with Pastor Alan Hush, and on the 25th of the 7th, 2012, my name comes up. Is that how it works? That's how I used to think it works. The judgment of the living, right? That's how I used to think it. That terrified me. How, how do you judge the living? We're looking at the Bible and getting, and, and, and getting a picture from prophecy. It seems to me that God is simply going to use a crisis. And it's a mechanism providing a simple test to show the universe, to show the world who we truly are. That's what it seems to me judgment is all about. That's how he's judging us. He knows us. He knows our hearts. The Bible says there will be no temptation that you cannot bear. He knows us. But he's going to use a crisis for us to show who we truly are. Perhaps that could be what it means when the Bible says God is going to judge. He's going to use the crisis to show our true caliber. All right. Okay, we haven't got time for the sanctuary. That's a different story. So then, judgment is for the is for positive the saints. Judgment is for the saints with the seal of God. So judgment is positive for the saints who have the seal. Judgment is against or is negative the sinners with a mark. And what prepares us for the judgment? It's the three angels' messages. That's why in the book of Revelation, it's negative for God's people before, but it's positive for God's people after because it's the experience with God through the gospel that makes it positive for us. We cannot be lost in the judgment. It is impossible to be lost during the time of the investigative judgment if you are a child of God. It is impossible. All the judgment is doing is revealing to the world and to the universe whose you are. That's all it's doing. It's a simple mechanism for you to reveal who you truly are. 
And it's a mechanism that is fair, that is just, that is righteous. And it's easy for the world to understand because the world uses the same mechanism in the secular life every day of the week. See how God is so practical? See how God is so simple? That's it. And the mechanism includes the Sabbath versus Sunday. So simple. So simple. So in other words, I heard one preacher say once, do you remember a man called George Vanderman from America? You know Mark Finley? Mark Finley was the disciple, <laughs> the pupil of George Vanderman. When I hear Mark Finley preach, I remi I'm remembered of George Vanderman. He's dead now. He's an evangelist from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. Mark Finley studied under him. When I hear Mark Finley, I hear Vanderman. You know? George Vanderman said this, we close probation upon ourselves. God does not close probation upon us. We choose whose we are. We choose who we belong to. And it's true. I believe it. God waits. God does not decide what he will do with us before we have decided what we will do with him. We close probation upon ourselves by choosing whose we are. And God in his love and God in his mercy waits for us to decide whose we are. And at some point in the future, I do not know when, Everybody on this planet will have decided whose they are. And I don't know when that will be. That's not given in Scripture for us to know. But God will know when that time comes. But right now, God is looking for young people to decide whose you are. And when we read the great controversy, it's in one of the closing chapters. Ellen White says, an angel returns to heaven from earth Declaring to heaven that the last decision on earth has been made. And that's when Jesus takes off his priestly robes and comes as king of kings. When the last decision on earth has been made. And that decision is carried to heaven through, the, through an angel messenger. Could it be the angels are waiting for each and every one of us to make our decision for and against God? That's in the book, The Great Controversy. It's one of the closing chapters. And that blew my mind when I read it. I thought, whoa, wait a minute. We are deciding what he, we will do with God. We close probation upon ourselves. We are the ones that have to have that freedom of choice. And God is waiting for us to make that choice. And the pronouncement in the investigative judgment is when? Revelation. Revelation. Let's read it. The last, book of, the last chapter of the book of Revelation. The pronouncement in the investigative judgment Revelation 22, verse 11. This is the pronouncement in the judgment. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy, and the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. In other words, let him who is just 
be just. And let him who is unjust be unjust. That's the pronouncement in the judgment. So at the time of the investigative judgment, that's the time for us to show who we truly are. And once everyone on earth has made up their mind to show the universe, the world, who we truly are, then God will say, let him who is just be just. This is the, what we call the executive judgment. The investigative judgment is taking place right now. And we, you know what? We use this same mechanism in a court of law. Here in, uh, in Austria, in Switzerland, in Germany, in Poland, in Hungary, in, in Yugoslavia, in England, we use the same mechanism. There is a time of investigation during any court of law, right? There's an investigation period. We have a jury presided over by a judge. There's a time of investigation where evidence is revealed to the court to show who we truly are as defendants. And then there is a pronouncement from the judge. Let him who is just be just. They walk free. Let him who is guilty, let him be guilty. They go to prison. In the spiritual judgment, it's real. In the literal investigative judgment, there is a time of investigation. Now is that time. There is a time that is executive, and that is the pronouncement in Revelation 22. Let him who is just be just. Or another name for what is just is righteous. Let him who is righteous be righteous. So the pronouncement in Revelation 22 verse 11 is the verdict and the reward follows. And what's the reward? The new Jerusalem. Getting to heaven is the reward. Is the message of judgment within the everlasting gospel? Yes. The judgment is not at the second coming. Most evangelical churches believe that the time of God's judgment is the second coming. But the time of God's judgment is now. The executive pronouncement or the executive face of the judgment is pronounced just before Jesus comes. Let him who is righteous be righteous still. That's the pronouncement. And then Jesus will come. The second coming is not the judgment. The second coming is not the judgment. Most of Christendom believe the judgment is the second coming. But that's not the case. We as Adventists don't believe that. Because it's not biblical. Why, why can't I get my mouse? So the judgment is now. The investigative judgment began in 1844. It's carrying on right now. It's the executive phase, phase, Revelation 22, verse 11. And then there is the second coming. Now here's an interesting question. Can the last generation be saved by being forgiven alone? Can the last generation be saved by being forgiven alone? The answer is yes and no. Because the last generation will be forgiven, but will also be pronounced just. So there needs to be a declaration. There is forgiveness, and there is the declaration of being just. The act of forgiveness must include the pronouncement or the verdict we need to be justified, as we've read in Revelation 22, verse 11. Enter the truth of justification by faith. Justification by faith. Remember what Ellen White said in one selected messages. She said, when answering the question, is justification by faith in the three angels' messages? Ellen White said, the three angels' messages 
is justification by faith in verity. In other words, the three angels' message in its completeness is justification by faith. So the answer to the question, can we be saved by being forgiven? The answer is yes, but not without justification by faith. But that's a whole different seminar. And Sebastian Braxton is doing that one. Justification, introducing righteous by faith. That is in the three angels' messages. Now, I've got 10 minutes left, right? I've got 10 minutes? This is still 12? I don't know. I haven't got a watch. I'm hopeless with time. It's on till 12. So we have what? 45? 40 minutes. Wow. Wow. You know what? I have another short presentation. Can I, can I do that? Short, just, just 20 minutes, and then we'll have some questions. Because without my next presentation, you might think, ooh, ooh, we can't be saved by being forgiven. Are you with me? Yes, we can be saved by being forgiven. But that's not the complete story. Just very quickly, I shared it with you just a bit. Remember the story of the prodigal son? Right? The prodigal son? It's a passage about forgiveness. But forgiveness is not mentioned in the passage. But let me ask you the question. When was the son forgiven? In the parable of the prodigal son. When was he forgiven? I'm not asking when was he saved. I'm not asking when was he saved. I'm trying to get to a point, now this might be radical, and I'm not heretical, I'm an Adventist, right? I'm Adventist. I'm nothing else. Forgiveness with God is not a decision. Forgiveness with God is an attitude, it's who he is. And I've got Bible texts to support it. Did I write them down? I don't think I wrote them down. There's a text in the Bible that says that Jesus is the propitiation not only for our sins, the Christians, but for the sins of the whole world. Do you remember that text? First Peter, isn't it? Let's find it. I've got it. I've got it highlighted, I think. If you can find it, help me. But when was the when was the prodigal son forgiven? I believe that that provision of forgiveness was in place because it was who the father was. The provision of forgiveness, the forgiveness was there even when the father gave him the money, even when he, before he asked for the money because it was who the father, it's the character of the father. But he could not benefit. He could not, that forgiveness could not kick in. That, it, it, it wasn't experienced. It wasn't received until he repented. Until he decided in the pigs that my father's too good. My father is too righteous. How am I doing this when my father is so good? That's repentance, right? But the offer, the provision was there all along. 
It was who the father was. The father was longing for him, waiting for him to come home. So, the, so God was like offering that forgiveness, the, the provision, the forgiveness was there, but it was not received until he repented and decided to come home. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross? Jesus prayed the prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now was everybody in the sight of that cross forgiven? Were they forgiven? Were they saved? Was everybody in the sight of that cross saved? Because they didn't repent. You have to come into your right mind. We've looked at that. We, to, what does it mean to fear God, to get wisdom, to get your right mind back? To get understandings, to get your right mind back. The prodigal son had to get his right mind back. People who put Christ upon the cross had to get their right mind back. They had to, they had to repent. But what did Jesus pray? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness is a provision that is there. It's for the whole world. But the whole world won't benefit from that forgiveness because they have to decide to receive that forgiveness. And then they are forgiven. Are you with me? It's a two-way relationship. It's not cheap grace. It's not cheap grace I'm preaching now. It's a two-way relationship. You've got to accept that the goodness of God leads to repentance. What is the goodness of God? Forgiveness. But you have to be pronounced just. How are you pronounced just? By repenting. That's when God says, you're forgiven. You are saved. By repenting. And the judgment is an opportunity for everyone to stand up. Choose who they, whose side they are. And Jesus says, you're forgiven and you're just. Now let's quickly go to the next message very quickly. Keep your questions for the end because I don't want you to go confused. I'm not preaching cheap grace. I'm not preaching that everyone in the world is forgiven and saved. I'm not preaching that. I'm just trying to get you to think about the love of God and how his everlasting gospel is there, not just for the saved, but it's for the lost. It's for everybody. There's no need to fear in the judgment. God has done everything he can to save the entire world. And if you choose to be on God's side, how can you be lost? How can you be lost? Because God takes responsibility for seeing you through. He takes that responsibility for seeing you through. Remember Exodus chapter 19, verse 5? Oh, I didn't read it. You keep my covenant. You will keep my ways. You listen to my voice. You will be for me a peculiar people. You will be for me my special treasure. You will be for me my kingdom of priests. You will be for me my holy nation. You will be for me my witnesses, my examples. You will stand up and you will not receive the mark of the beast. That's the promise of God. When we stand on God's side as Adventist youth, we cannot be lost because God saves us and God takes the responsibility to give us the strength to stand through the time of crisis and God keeps us straight. God keeps us right. God gives us the power to overcome. It's all about God. All we've got to do is choose. It's all about him. Right, very quickly. Let's exit this. Oh.
it on the screen? Let's get this formatted right. Very quickly, Alan White said, first selected message is 372. The justification by faith is the 300th message in verity. Very quickly. Very quickly, what is the greatest problem we all have? It's sin, right? I want to ask rhetorical questions because we haven't got time. I'm going to have to ask the question and answer the question because of time. It's sin. Sin is our biggest problem. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. For the living know that they will die and the dead know nothing. That's a terrible life. Friends, that is a terrible state to be in. When we're alive, we know we're going to die. And when we're dead, there is nothing. How can I be an atheist? That is one sad life. It's just nothing. But the gift of God is eternal life. So the Bible says there's a solution to the problem of life, which is death. The Bible says the dead know nothing. You don't go anywhere when you die. You're just dead. But the gift of God is eternal life. What kind of life? Eternal life. So... We need to know how to get eternal life, right? How do we get eternal life? And when do we literally begin our eternal life? When do we literally begin our eternal life? When Jesus returns. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel, etc. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. So there's a resurrection from the dead. We get resurrection. We get eternal life, literally speaking, when Jesus comes. We get eternal life literally, experientially, when Jesus comes. When we're resurrected from the dead or when we are translated. Okay, that's when we literally get eternal life at the second coming. But, so we now live during the time of promise. So we're living now during the time of the promise of eternal life. The promise of the second coming. It's not literal yet. We have the promise. And how do we live during the time of promise? We live by faith. We live by faith in the second coming. We live by faith that we will gain eternal life when Jesus comes. We simply live by faith. We can have the assurance when we believe in the resurrection. Now quickly look at this. When we die, the Bible calls death asleep. Why does the Bible call death asleep? Because the Bible teaches there is a resurrection. And when is the resurrection? When Jesus comes again. We call it the second coming. We get eternal life at the resurrection. We get eternal life at the second coming. And see how the doctrines are connected. You see? How the state of the dead is connected to the second coming of Jesus. The millennium. Eternity in heaven. Eternity on the earth made new. It's all connected to the resurrection. The second coming. Each doctrine is connected to another. So how can there be a resurrection? There's a resurrection because of Jesus Christ. Simply, for, for in Adam all died, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. There's a resurrection simply because of Jesus. Because Jesus stepped into the sin problem. All died because of Adam, but Jesus' intervention will allow everyone to have eternal life. Everyone deserves death, but everybody desires life. I don't want to die forever. I desire to live forever. But if I want to live forever, I have to accept the provision, which is the resurrection from the dead. And therefore, I have to accept the provision is that Jesus is coming again. And therefore, I also have to accept that Jesus is my Savior in order to get eternal life. I can't have eternal life on my terms. The world wants to live forever, but it's finding the solutions elsewhere. It's avoiding coming face to face with our lovely Jesus. <clears throat> 
So then quickly, how many resurrections are there? There's two resurrections. The resurrection of life and there's the resurrection of condemnation. The Bible tells us there are two resurrections. One is for the wicked and one is for the righteous. So even the wicked are raised because of Jesus' life. Even the wicked can be resurrected by virtue of Jesus' resurrection. How can we take part in the resurrection of life? Very quickly. The Bible says, And they shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life. So how can we take part in the resurrection of life? By doing good. We take part in the resurrection of life by simply doing what is good. Doing good, and therefore, is the condition of eternal life. When does Jesus determine whether we are good or evil? Well, it has to be done before he comes back, right? has to be done before he comes back. There needs to be something that describes the process of declaring whether we are good or evil, whether we have done good or whether we have done good evil, good have done good or whether we have done evil. And that process is called the investigative judgment. The hour of his judgment is come. That's the process that describes the declaration of us being good or evil. It's the investigative judgment. The first angel's message, the hour of his judgment is come. Just like in a court of law, I've shared that with you. There's a pronouncement. The judges pronounces us just in court. The prerequisite is the investigation. The freedom comes after the investigation. Right. What does God desire during the time of judgment? I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. So the question was, what does God desire during the time of judgment? He desires the blotting out of sin. God's desire is to have our sins blotted out during the time of judgment. So sins need to be blotted out. We need to be declared righteous. This is why we can't be saved by just simply being forgiven without the declaration of being just. We need to be declared righteous. We need to have the blotting out of sin. How are sins blotted out? Very quickly. Let's turn to a Bible text. Hebrews 10, 16. This is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their heart, and in their minds I will write them. That's the text I was alluding to earlier. The laws, our mind, and our heart. Why does God have to write his law in our heart? Why do we have to write things down? Practically, why do we have to write things down? <laughs> because we forget. Because we forget. I write things down because I'll forget them. We need to, they need to be remembered. We write things down in order to remember. Let's ask a question. Which commandment invites us to remember? The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There we go. The fourth commandment asks us to remember the Sabbath day. When God wants to write his laws in our hearts, it's for us to remember and the fourth commandment is the Sabbath commandment. So the Sabbath is connected to the new covenant. So what is God saying? God is simply saying, if you will allow me to help you to remember my law, I will not remember your sin. 
Remember, God wants to blot out sins. How can he do that? By putting his law into our hearts and minds so that we will remember his ways. So what is God saying to us? If you will help me, if you will allow me to help you to remember my law, I will not remember your sins. Now can God, can God forget anything? Does God have such a bad memory he forgets? No, God is God. God chooses to forget. God chooses to forget. He decides, I will remember your sin no more. If you allow me to help you to remember my law. Isn't that simple? Isn't that beautiful? Let's look further. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds I will write them and their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. I will not remember your iniquity. I will not remember your sin anymore. Just help me to help you. And this is what I'm going to do for you. He chooses to forget. He chooses to forget. Quickly turn to Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah 50 and verse 20. Verse 20. In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, a search will be made for the iniquity of Israel. This is the only text in the Bible that I have discovered talks about the investigative judgment. This verse is talking about an investigation. A search will be made for the sins of Israel. God is searching. He is investigating. Okay? Look what the Bible says. Verse 20. A search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, but there will be none. For the sins of Judah, but they will not be found. Why will there be none found? Because I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. I will pardon them. All right. There's a verse in here that talks about coming out of Babylon. I want to share with you this. You can help me because you're all Bible students. Verse 28, refugees in the land of Babylon. There's a second year of this message here as well as the first. Fifty-one, verse one. Behold, I'm going to rouse against Babylon. Verse seven. Babylon has been a golden cup in my hand, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine; therefore, the nations are going mad. Suddenly, Babylon has fallen and has broken. Where's this? Two texts that talks about coming out of Babylon. 
sorry, I haven't, I haven't prepared this. It's a little digression. But again, I wanted, I wanted to show you that God chooses to forgive. God, God chooses to justify us, even though our land is full of guilt. Even though we are guilty, God chooses to forgive and to forget our sin. And it's 51 verse 6. Flee from the midst of Babylon. That's it. Thank you. Each of you save his life. So come out of Babylon. That's the second angel's message. Do not be destroyed in her punishment. For this is the Lord's time of vengeance. He is going to render recompense to her. But there's a verse that actually says, though your land is full of guilt, I will spare you. That's, that's a study that you can take home. Jeremiah 50, 51, 52. That is the three angels' message, literally fulfilled in the old time of Israel. Okay, but God chooses to forget. Sin exists everywhere. How can God choose to forget sin when sin exists everywhere? It exists in our bodies, it exists in the world. There's the devil, right? Sin is everywhere. It's in our minds, it's in nature. Satan. But one day the record of evidence of sin will be no more. It'll be all gone. It will be erased from even our minds only the memory will be the feet, in the feet and hands of Jesus, the scars in his body. The only solution to the sin problem will be the only reminder of the sin problem. All right? Let's quickly move on. What else does God declare? The Bible says, Let us plead together, declare thou that thou mayest be justified. God's plan is for us all to be justified. So he needs sins blotted out. He wants to put his laws in our minds and in our hearts so that we might be justified. When does God remember? Not remember our sins. When our sins are blotted out, we read it. God chooses to forget our sin when our sins are blotted out. Right? What else does God have to do to forget? He needs to put the law into our hearts. We've looked at that. When sins are blotted out, he will not remember. When he does not remember, we are declared just. When we are justified, we are sealed. When we are sealed, we are among the 144,000. When we are among the 144,000, we receive life. You see how it's all connected? All right? Someone might then ask the question, how can I be experienced for sure? How can I live it out? How can I know for sure? Well, you've got to live by faith. It's righteousness by faith, Right? It's justification by faith, right? By faith, we have the promise of the second coming. By faith, we believe that Jesus is coming soon. How do you live it practically? By faith. It's all by faith. Can we say that we are saved? Yes, we can. By faith. We can say that we are saved. By faith, we are saved. Yes, we can. Can we say that our sins are blotted out? Yes, we can. By faith, our sins are blotted out. But only by faith we can say that. The legalists won't say that, but we can say it biblically. The sanctuary message helps us to understand the resurrection. All right? No, the sanctuary message helps us to understand the investigative judgment. The state of the dead helps us to understand the resurrection. Each doctrine is connected to another. They're pieces of one picture, and it's the picture of God. The sanctuary is like a picture plan of salvation. I've explained that. All right. Now here's one more question. What is the ultimate act of God's mercy for us? By His mercy we live and breathe. By His mercy we receive the gospel. By His mercy we repent. 
By his mercy we receive forgiveness. By his mercy we are declared just. By his mercy we can overcome sin. It's all by mercy. For I will be merciful. For I will be merciful. It's by the mercies of God. His mercy is his ultimate act of love towards us. He is merciful towards us. And David knew this. King David knew that salvation was based upon the mercies of God and that we can only experience his mercies by faith. Look at what David says here. Have mercy upon me, O God. O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. David knew that his transgressions needed to be blotted out. His sins needed to be blotted out. David was asking for more than forgiveness. David was asking for more than forgiveness. David was asking for justification. He was asking to be declared righteous. He was asking for his sins to be blotted out. David knew justification by faith. When we look at the sanctuary message, and I'm presuming you know it, in the sanctuary, what was the most sacred piece of furniture in the sanctuary? The most sacred piece of furniture. Yeah? But more specifically, where was God's dwelling place? The mercy seat. They call it the mercy seat. The most secret piece of furniture in the sanctuary was the mercy seat of God. Why did they call it the mercy seat? <laughs> the mercy seat was where his commandments were. We have no need to be frightened of the commandments. We can only live the commandments through the mercies of God. We can only experience right doing through His mercy. Come on. Romans 3.24 Being justified freely by His grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. That's an old English word. What does your Bible say in Romans 3.24? What does your version say? This is an old English word, propitiation, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Propitiation, what does it mean in your, in your Bible? Huh? Atonement? In English, propitiation means pacification, soothing, appeasement, a calming, a conciliation. It's like an, an atonement. What does your version say? Atonement. All right? So look at this now. God has said Jesus Christ, right? To be a, an atonement through faith in his blood. All right? So then, we have faith in Jesus Christ that he will atone for our sins that he will have mercy upon us no matter what sin we have ever committed and that he will have mercy upon us so that he will forgive us our sins and declare us just 
even though we are guilty of those sins. That's propitiation. That means conciliation, calming, appeasement. The mercy seat was the place for reconciliation. The mercy seat was the place for atonement. The mercy seat is where we truly experience the divine mercy, forgiveness, and justification of God. The commandments are not to be scared. It's not something to be scared of. No, it's who God is. Evangelists will tell you that the commandments are a transcript of God's character. So the sanctuary with the mercy seat in the most holy place is connected to the investigative judgment. They're connected. The three angels' message and the sanctuary is connected. And the sanctuary and the three angels' message helps us to understand what righteousness by faith means. That God deals with our sin. We need our sins blotted out. Who can have life? The righteous. Who are the righteous? Those who are justified. Who are justified? Those with the sins that have been blotted out. I want to have my sins blotted out. And I want to declare like David, have mercy upon me, O God, and blot out my transgressions. And in the time of judgment, which is now, I don't have any fear. If every morning I wake up and say, God, forgive me. Declare me righteous because of you and your life and what you have done and who you are, and what you're doing right now in the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus, have mercy upon me because of who you are and what you're doing right now. Declare me guiltless, even though I am guilty. And we can have justification by faith today. And it's only by faith. And we can say that we are saved by faith. This is the faith that God can give us an experience with. And it's a journey through the three angels' messages. My brief was, show how the three angels' messages have been relevant in every generation. The second angel's message, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. God has, God has always called his people out of confusion. In every generation, God has called his people to be separate. <coughs> Old Testament and New Testament. God has called his people to touch not the unclean thing, to come out of Babylon. Ezra 10, 11. Matthew 25, 32, 2 Corinthians 6, 17, be ye separate, do not touch the unclean thing. Have nothing to do with unbelievers. There's always a call to be separate. The third angel's message, what about the third angel's message that's always been relevant in every generation? Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. In every Christian generation, we have been called to keep the commandments of God and to have the faith of Jesus. So the three angels' message has been relevant for all time. But specifically, the present truth, the present truth is the hour of his judgment is come. The present truth is also the mark of the beast. We don't want to receive it. We want to receive the seal of God. The Sabbath and Sunday is connected. That's present truth. So that's my presentation. We've got seven minutes for, for questions. Are there any questions? Have I confused you? You want some clarification? Perhaps you might disagree. I don't know. We've got seven minutes. Nice and loud. Uh, why do you think that uh, the 
Revelation 14, the three angels' messages? Yeah, I think perhaps it's because it's, it's implied. It's implied. It's part of the process. Just like in the parable of the prodigal son. It's a parable about forgiveness. I think the three angels' messages is about a process that includes forgiveness, but it's implied. But it's not mentioned. It's part of the process. Perhaps. Forgiveness is integral to everyone's experience in salvation, right? But not every text in Scripture talks about forgiveness. There's a lot of implications in Scripture as well. And perhaps that's it's implied in Revelation 14. Well, I believe it is. Yeah, answer your own question. Yes. Yes. God offers, that's true, and we receive. And the, and the moment of reception is repentance. It's the decision to accept it. Yeah. That's why we believe in the Adventist church and, and, and in many other churches, the, the freedom of the human will, the freedom of choice. We believe that that is ours to exercise, the freedom of choice. Nobody can force us against our will. And that's the principle in Revelation 14. Because that's a process of choice. You know, choose you this day whom you will serve. It's always been, now during the time of the investigative judgment, especially, God is calling us through a message, those three angels, to make a choice for or against him. And that's Matthew 24, verse 12 to 14. The gospel of the kingdom must go to the whole world as a witness. The three angels' message must go to the whole world as a witness. Why? so that humans can make a choice for or against God. A witness, a witness is a piece of evidence, right? A witness in a court of law is like a piece of evidence that allows the jury, the people in court, to make an, an intelligent decision, an informed decision. The, the evidence to make the right decision, okay? That's the three angels' message. The three angels' message is the evidence that helps people to make an informed and right and true decision. And that message has to go to the world before Jesus comes. So God is waiting for that message to go to the world so that we can make a choice. It's all about our choices. So don't believe. This is what I tell young people. Don't believe some of the lies that we can sometimes hear, like, I had no choice. I had to do it. You didn't have to do it. We've all got choice, right? If someone says to you, oh, you know, the devil made me do it. You know the devil can't make you do anything? The devil can't make you do anything? All my friends were doing it. Your friends can't make you do anything you don't really want to do. It's free, it's free will, freedom of choice. My genes made me do it, you know? I had to do it because my genes, when I say my genes, my, my DNA, my DNA made me do it, you know? No, you have freedom of choice. We can have inherited tendencies from our parents. 
You can have inherited tendencies, yes, but you can break free from those tendencies. You can break free from those tendencies. Absolutely. Freedom of choice. So it's, yeah. So forgiveness is offered and it's ours to receive. But it's offered unconditionally and it's offered to us before we repent. It's a provision that's given, but it's not experienced until we received it. Yeah. Any other questions? Where was that then? There we go. Do you want to write that down? And if you want to come and get the presentation, come and get it. I can, I can let you have a copy of it. And I haven't locked it as well, so I'm trusting you with it. Okay? Um, yeah. I, I, I just think the judgment something. It's something that many Adventist kids are scared of, especially teenagers. Juniors are too young to think about it so seriously, but teenagers are. Teenagers think about the judgment, they're scared to death. And we need to let them know that judgment is positive, it's for them. It's for them. And God will, will see them through it, and he'll walk them through that time. Just help them see the goodness of God in the judgment. Because God's fair, he wants us all to make a decision for him. And we're all in the process. If there's no more questions... Yeah, that's a whole different presentation. But very quickly, the mark of the beast, it's not a chip, it's not a barcode, it's, it's nothing technological. It's, well, if the seal of the living God, if the seal of the living God, we mentioned that, is connected to the creation and the Sabbath, all right, the mark of the beast is going to be connected to something that the beast has created. If God has created the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is connected to the seal of the living God. What day of the week has the beast created for worship? That's okay, biblically. Sunday. I, I'm giving you a whole presentation in one statement. Boom! Go and study it. But the seal and the mark of the beast is basically allegiance to a false system of worship. You'll either have it in your head, in other words, you'll understand it and go along with it, or you'll have it in your hand. You'll follow it because it's convenient. Okay, you'll have it in your hand, convenience. So it's a false system of worship. And that false system of worship is, it's like signified, it's marked by a false day of worship. It's marked by a, it's marked by a false day of official, theological, doctrinal worship. Sabbath is God's sign, so there's an opposing sign. Same, same sort of it's the same sort of expression, and it's a day of worship, and we believe it's Sunday. Because that was the day that man instituted instead of Sabbath. And it was set up by an institution that the Bible identifies as the expression, um, the force on the planet expressing the will of the devil. The religious force on the planet expressing the will of the devil. Okay. I'm being diplomatic. 
for specific reasons. Because not everybody here might, you know, you see what I'm saying? Or maybe I should just be honest. Anyway, nominal Christian churches worship on Sunday. That is not the biblical Sabbath. Biblical Sabbath is Saturday. Those are the two practical signs, the two practical checks that God's put in place as part of the process of identifying who we are. So the seal of God is partly to do with keeping the Sabbath. The mark of the beast is partly to do with worshipping on the false day of the week. It's got nothing to do with a barcode or a chip or whatever thing like that. That's what Hollywood wants you to believe. Have you noticed how many Hollywood movies are very apocalyptic? In the last decade, so many movies are apocalyptic in theme. Even the superhero movies like Batman, you look at them. Have you ever heard of Little Light Ministry? There's a bunch of lads from California. They worked in Hollywood. There's three of them, four of them. Little Light Ministry, they all worked in Hollywood. One was a cameraman, one was an actor, and one was something else. And they came out of Hollywood. They all became Christians, and they've got something called Little Light Ministry. Google it. Invite them to come to Europe, your church. They've got some good stuff on that. Hollywood knows what they're doing. Hollywood knows what they're doing. If you look at the themes in the movies, they know what they're doing. It's, it's antichrist. Hollywood is deliberately changing the way we uh, think about God, about faith, and they know exactly what they're doing. Even movies like um, The Matrix. Don't use that movie to try and introduce Christianity to people. Because on the surface of it, it appears to have Christian theme, parallel, but it's not. It's called, it's anti. It's actually presenting the Savior as the devil. And it's presenting the devil as Jesus. Um, they know what they're doing. You can't take what the world has to offer and Christianize it. Sorry? Little Light, Little Light Ministry or Little Light Studio. Just Google them. They're, they're, they're pretty good. Now, time is gone. Let's have a prayer to close. And God bless you. Let's stand for prayer. <coughs> Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity. I hope I've been as clear as I can be. I'm not a theologian. I'm a youth leader. But I pray, Lord, that you, are, that you will be with your youth and rise them up so that they'll go back to their local churches and be leaders there to lead youth well. And I thank you for them. They are so precious in your sight. I pray that you will take them from strength to strength and use them mightily in your work across Europe. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. GYC are supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.